Our reading this morning is verses 1 through 12. And at this point in Luke's narrative of the actions of the apostles, we come to really what is a striking, use the word shocking, scene. A Jewish man in the role of the devil is attempting to make a Gentile man a member of hell with him. And just as Christ promised in the face of the Pharisees, he defeats the devil's intentions in the heart of the Jewish man and brings the Gentile to Christ. Remember our Lord said to those Pharisees that they travel over hill and dale to make proselytes twice the enemies of God as themselves. Here we see it. But the Lord Jesus Christ will establish his kingdom in Gentile territory even so. Let us pray and then read. Our gracious God, we do pray that you would bless our hearing of your word in its public reading, in its preaching. We pray that your spirit would indeed be a good plowman among us. Break up the fallow ground in our heart, O Lord. Plow a straight row. Grant our hearts to be made good so that the good seed of your word takes root and brings forth a harvest of righteousness. 30, 60, 100-fold. Grant our little ones to hear the voice of the Master. Grant even now in this hour the hardest heart to hear the sweetest words of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, enthroned, reigning and ruling on behalf of even the hard sinners to save, to forgive, to make new. Father, Account us not according to our readiness to hear your word today. Account us not according to the preparations we should have made. Account, O Lord, according to the mercies of your Son and of your steadfast love. Grant us ears. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king, excuse me, Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, And sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, 
seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went away, he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is God's word. In the passage before us this morning, we see how it is the ambition, the ambition of our Lord Jesus Christ from his throne in heaven to advance and to establish his kingdom in the very places most fortified against it. This is not his his exclusive ambition, but it is his inclusive ambition to establish his kingdom in the very places most fortified against it, the universities of the West, the great cities of the earth. There is not a place where Christ will not be pleased to establish his kingdom. The island of Cyprus was a hotbed of pagan activity. When Paul and Barnabas arrived there, they journeyed from east to west, our text says, from the port city of Salamis to the port city of Paphos. It's a long island. It would take by foot about seven days to walk it along the two roads that were on the land at that time. Well, during their journey, Paul and Barnabas would have been surrounded by carved idols, stone temples, eager worshipers, all from the Aphrodite cult. The island was throbbing with idolatry. Called Venus by the Romans, Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love and fertility. Cyprus was supposedly her birthplace. She was the patron god of prostitutes, but also an honored goddess of war and worshipped regularly as the goddess of the sea by seafaring men. After all, the Greeks said she was born in the sea, born supposedly in the sea foam right off the coast of Paphos, birthed from the remains of the Greek god Uranus after he was mutilated by his son Cronus and thrown into the sea. This whole system of idolatry darkened the minds of the people of Cyprus. You see, as a people, they could be as intelligent as Sergius is said to be. But also, like Sergius, they easily fell prey to all kinds of philosophical lies and tricks and schemes, the kind of stuff Elamis was selling. But the real wonder of the island of Cyprus is that Christ did not leave it alone. One of the great ministries of the East is headquartered there right now, this very hour, Middle East Reformed Fellowship. 
By the fourth century, when you read the attendees of the Council of Nicaea, there are men there from Cyprus. Christ did not leave it alone. He does not leave Cyprus to the imaginary gods of men. Because as it says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's. Whose is it? The earth. What part of the earth? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He will not leave the islands alone. The nations belong to Christ. The great cities of the earth belong to Christ. The coastlands belong to Christ. Florida belongs to Christ. Tell your relatives who live there. Wisconsin belongs to Christ. The villages in the back corners of the countryside belong to Christ. The ruler of this world is cast out, Jesus said in John 12, 31. Jesus now plunders the territory which Satan once ruled and kept in darkness. Jesus is actively plundering it. Think about it. All the people who lived on this earth 100 years ago are gone, replaced with a new slate of skeletons and souls. The plundering runs apace. Christ populates his kingdom. We will be gone a hundred years hence. And if the Lord tarries, replaced by billions who will be plundered by this king, Jesus Christ. By his blood, the scriptures tell us, the prophets tell us, the apostles tell us, Jesus has ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 5.9. Jesus is now snatching up these souls to himself through the preaching of the gospel, and he plunders not just where the pickings are easy, not just where devoted Jews are eager to hear something from the word. Now look at our text in verse 6. Jesus sends his word into an elite household where the only Jewish man present is a false prophet, Elamis, not even a devout Jew, a satanic Jew. But Jesus sends his word into that house. A man who is actively serving, serving Satan to keep a pagan Roman governor, Sergius, from coming to faith in Christ. Jesus sends his word to that house. But the Lord is going to disarm and defeat them both. Easily, the false prophet Elamis will physically enter the darkness that he has been promoting theologically. And the elite Roman ruler, Sergius, will enter the very faith which his hired magician was trying to keep him out of. Christ rules the world, beloved. Christ rules the world. So notice the big picture here in our text. Christ does not bow to the cultural development of the nations as if that cultural development is sacred and needs to be left alone. Not our Lord Jesus Christ. 
he will not bow to man. Christ does not look on the unfolding history of mankind in its various places and in its various ways and say, oh, it's all okay. It's all special, just as it is. I'll, I'll leave it be. No, Christ opposes. Christ opposes the falsehoods of men for the truth of God. Christ opposes the false theologies of men for the true theology of God. Christ opposes the false worship of men for the true worship of God. Christ opposes the false salvation of men for the true salvation of God. Christ both has opposition, and I'm not pointing at you. He both has opposition and he is the opposition. He is the Lord. He owns it all. If it is not reconciled to him, if it is not bowing the knee to him, it is in rebellion to him. The world is a place of opposition to Jesus Christ. Because he is Jesus Christ. From his throne in heaven, he has an active ministry of opposition on the earth. Why? Because on earth there are false prophets who, like the devil are quite happy to allow souls of men to be destroyed and who are quite happy for the reputation of Christ to be destroyed. Those are the motives of Elamis. So Christ must oppose. If he is the God of love, he must be the God of opposition. Christ must oppose them, these false prophets, because... He is full of grace and truth, John 1, 17. How then does Jesus do it? He does it from heaven, through the Holy Spirit, by bringing the ministry of his true prophets up against the work of false prophets. That's how he ordinarily brings his opposition to the earth. Hear it again. It's, it's a one-sentence summary of our whole passage. He does it from heaven, through the Holy Spirit, by bringing the ministry of his true prophets up against the work of false prophets, like a bat up against a ball. That's what he does. Christ, through the Holy Spirit, raises up and sends out his servants to rebuke imposters, to tear down strongholds, to proclaim the honor of Christ, and to preach the word of salvation, the good news. But please notice something critical in verses 1 through 3. Christ starts this work not outside the church, but inside the church. Look at the text. In the church at Antioch, verse 1 says, Christ raised up prophets and teachers. Verse 2, while the church was worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke setting apart Barnabas and Paul. Verse 3, the church laid their hands on them and sent them off. It was a commissioning service where the will of God passes through the hands of the church. Probably the church leaders, actually, because of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.14. To Timothy, he says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the 
council of elders, the Greek presbyteroi, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. But look at those three verses. The Holy Spirit does not raise up the servants of Christ to do the ministry of Christ without the participation of the church of Christ. And this is what we must learn from verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not follow self-appointed ministers. They're not from the Lord. Do not follow a minister who has appointed himself to do ministry outside of the church of Christ. Oh, you're here. Who's your pastor? I'm the pastor, and I don't have a flock. Who's your pastor? Well, I follow this guy on TV 17 states away. Beloved, do not follow self-appointed ministers. If you ever saw the movie The Apostle, Robert Duvall was warning you when he baptized himself in the river. He was saying, America, don't fall for this. Self-appointed ministers are not from the Lord, no matter how much they talk about the Holy Spirit, because we see right here and in many other texts that the Holy Spirit of the Almighty, he calls men from in the church to advance the church. Of course, there are some frauds, even when men are called from within the church. But because there are frauds, we do not dismiss the word and will of God. The Lord will deal with the frauds. And one great tell of a fraud, even if he does come from the church, even if he does say he's called by the Spirit, one great tell, one great proof is that he does not go and proclaim the word as we see them doing right away when they get to Cyprus. False prophets do not proclaim the word. They proclaim something. They might even just preach from books written by psychologists. That's becoming more fashionable than ever in this state. They're false prophets, even if they have anchors in a church. Let's make it clear, the work of the Spirit is not going to be away from the church. But let us not elevate the church too highly. It is the Holy Spirit himself who is the governor of the church. The church is not the governor of the Spirit. But the Spirit does fill the body of Christ. He governs through the Spirit-filled people of the church, a people who are serious about worship and serious about prayer. And that's where we should see the reference to fasting in these early verses. Fasting is an accessory to prayer. It is a sign of our humiliation that isn't rewarded. It actually just simply helps us pray more seriously, more fervently. This is a serious congregation in Antioch, is the point. And the Holy Spirit is pleased to use such, for he has created such. I love the circularity of the Lord. We should all love it. He rejoices in what he creates, even in his churches. Among such people, the Spirit asserts his will. 
a worshiping people, an assembled people, a local congregation of God's people. Do you see that it's among them that the Spirit asserts his will and enforces his own orders, and ministers are raised up by the Spirit and the church, and they go on, according to verse 5, and proclaim the word. Now let's look a little more closely at the opposition that Christ's servants meet in Cyprus, because this is really the focus of the passage. To give you a simple theological heading for what's happening here is Christ is defeating the powers of hell. His church is advancing over the gates of hell, and the gates of hell are not prevailing. And what we are seeing, beloved, just as I've pointed this out several times now, we are seeing the body of Christ on earth imitating her head when he was upon the earth. The Spirit is the one who sends Barnabas and Paul to Cyprus, right? A fortified, demonic island against the kingdom of Christ. The Spirit sends these two men there. Do you remember who drove the Messiah, Jesus Christ, out into the wilderness for 40 days of contention with the devil? The Spirit, Luke 4.1, led him, drove him, is the Greek, out into the wilderness. Why? To demonstrate who he is. The Lord of lords, the King of kings, the true and proper owner of the earth. So Luke tells us in verses 6 and 7 that Paul and Barnabas end up on Paphos, end up in Paphos on the western side of the island, the principal city of the island. And when they get there, they are headed right for the house of an intelligent Roman governor, Sergius Paulus. And also a man who is on his staff in some capacity, Elamis the magician, a Jewish man known as Bar-Jesus, Jesus being a most common name, as common as John is today, and he's a false prophet. Now, Elamis is said to be a magician. This doesn't mean that he knew a single card trick. This meant that he probably had recipes and incantations to make great wealthy men think that they could control their world. One example of an Elamis today would be somebody who always says everything can be solved by technology or everything can be solved by medicine. No offense to my beloved pharmacist in the room. But a magician spirit in the modern world is people who think everything is controllable by tech or medicine. You just need to have the money to buy it. But Elamus is more than that. He covers all of that in religion because he is a false prophet, meaning he has brought theology to bear upon his powers or suggests his powers can bear upon your theology making one right and blessed of God. What we are supposed to recognize as Barnabas and Paul go to the house of Sergius Paulus is that they are going into a climate of opposition. They are going to see the powers of evil defeated by a word. 
Beloved, we should remember as we see this passage unfold before us what our Lord himself said to John, the apostle on the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1. He said, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Beloved, you should have a great, huge adjustment taking place in your heart and mind as you read these scriptures today. If you are somebody who always thought that the devil could get the upper hand on you and you would have to wake Jesus up to maybe come and help you, find that theology completely blown into smithereens this morning. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only Lord of Hades. He is the only Lord of death. There's only one key, and he has it. So the Spirit takes the church into opposition in Acts 13, verses 1 through 12. And we shouldn't be surprised, because in John's letter to the churches of Revelation, he writes to Smyrna, and he says to them in Revelation 2, 9, you live in a city where the synagogue of Satan dwells. He writes to the church of Pergamum and says, you live where Satan dwells in that city. You know, it is a shameful thing, and I've said many shameful things just in the last year probably. So don't take this too hard, but don't take it too light. It is a shameful thing for a Christian to say, I could never live in that city. I could never live in that state. I could never live on that planet Beloved, let us think like those who are living under the wing of the Lord of death and Hades. We can live where Satan dwells and thrive in the life of our Savior, thrive in holiness. Our children can thrive in righteousness in those places. Who has the power? Who is the Lord? We are being taught this again in Acts 13. Can you imagine somebody running out and putting their hands on Paul's chest and pleading with him, don't go. Don't go to Paphos. There's a magician there. There's an elite, powerful pagan there. Don't go. Luke would have us come to this chapter right after the previous one. Now, that's, I know, master of the obvious stuff, right? We just came from a passage where Peter was sleeping on a stone floor, and an angel kicked him in the side in the middle of the night and said, let's go. Who is the Lord? We don't go without preparation. Look how prepared these men were, fasting and worshiping. But we go. The churches go. The churches are planted. The pastors go. The missionaries go. The church of Jesus Christ advances in the context of opposition. For such is his power and such is his love. He will not leave his elect alone under the rule of the devil. You see, our Lord Jesus does not wander the edges of Satan's kingdom, seeing who might have escaped all by themselves, 
and now they're wandering where he can get close enough to them without getting dirt on himself, and he sees them naked and starving, and he opens this car door and says, jump in while I'm going driving. No. He plunders those city cells. He assaults and attacks and takes captive souls. And so he told Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, let's get right to the epicenter of the opposition here, where the sparks really do fly. We're talking now about verses 9 and 10 and 11, where Paul lays his eyes upon Elamis the magician. Notice what our text says in verse 9. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. This is now the third time that these 12 verses have pointed to the ministry and governance of the Holy Spirit. And here the Holy Spirit is brought back into our ear right at the moment that the opposition is most intense, right at the moment that many modern men would say, Paul, don't talk like that. Right at that moment, Luke attributes what Paul is going to say to the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit does not retreat. He surges in the Lord's servant. And then what does Paul say? Well, in verse 10, he exposes the truth about Elamis to Sergius. And he exposes the truth about Elamis to the church. And he exposes the truth about Elamis to the world. And quite significantly, in verse 10, he exposes the truth about Elamis to Elamis. Acts 13.10, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Here is the opposition. Let's break these four statements down very quickly. As a son of the devil, Elamis is just like the devil, Paul is saying. He lies about sin, and he lies about salvation. But not only is a son of the devil a liar, a son of the devil is also a murderer. Elamis, like Satan, does not care about the soul of sinners, does not care that sinners enter spiritual life. He is glad to keep them dead in their sins and keep them dead in their trespasses as long as it is to his advantage. Let me ask you today, are any of you a son of the devil? You can know for sure right now if you are. Would it bother you if a co-worker became a Christian? Would it bother you if a client became a Christian? Would it disturb you if one of your children became a Christian? Your husband, your wife, would it bother you if they became a Christian? Is there anybody that you would be bothered by becoming a Christian because they would then see that you are a son of the devil, that you are an enemy of all righteousness, that you are not a Christian, that you're false? If there's anybody on the earth that you would be bothered by if they became a Christian because it would suddenly disadvantage you, 
You are a son of the devil. Your lover, if they became a Christian, and that would bother you, you are a son of the devil. Beloved, this is the ministry of God's word to you. This is the word of the prophets doing in your soul in this very moment the very thing the Spirit did in Elamis's soul when Paul walked in that house. Let's continue. As an enemy of all righteousness, Elamis has no serious standard of righteousness. No fixed standard of righteousness. No divine standard of righteousness. He makes fun of righteousness. Instead of holding to a divine, weighty righteousness that humbles him and makes him cry out to God for mercy, Elamis holds to a soft, stretchy, liquid righteousness. So he actually is fighting against righteousness. He is its enemy. The biggest enemies of righteousness are the self-righteous. They need to keep righteousness at a three-foot-high wall because they can tell themselves they've met it, that they can climb over it. They don't want anybody coming and telling them that this wall is actually 1,000 feet high. And so they always fight against the true height of God's righteousness. And if they could stop fighting, they might fall upon Christ crucified and find that the standard of righteousness is met in him. He is an enemy of righteousness. Calvin spoke of such men so eloquently. He says, Because nothing appears within or around us that has not been contaminated by great immorality, what is a little less vile pleases us as a thing most pure, so long as we confine our minds within the limits of human corruption. Calvin's point is that we adopt a standard of righteousness that is lesser than that revealed in the word of God to comfort ourselves, and we become enemies then of righteousness. Are you an enemy of righteousness? Third, Elamis is full of deceit and villainy. This means Elamis is not even moderately bad. He is thoroughly bad. He is determined to be bad and do bad. There is not even a war at work or raging within him. He is full of just one thing, a corrupt zeal to make others corrupt. That's why his strategy is to keep Sergius from coming to faith. And four, lastly, as a man who will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord, Elamis is a man opposed to true religion, though religion fills his waking hours. Every religious question Sergius presents to him or ponders out loud in Elamis's presence is then taken by Elamis to direct Sergius further away from the truth of the matter. Do you see now why Paul speaks so forcefully to Elamis? Because he is a destroyer of souls, a murderer of souls, a liar 
to take souls away from salvation. He is of the devil's trade. Let us understand, because these are strikingly hard words. Paul's goal here was not to offend Elamis. His goal was to show Elamis how offensive he is to God. It is interesting, and when we peek into church history, we find some of our most noble pastors and theologians discussing the rough manners of Paul in verse 10. The fourth century preacher Chrysostom addresses it. He seems to be very aware as a pastor that some in his church might think Paul is abusing Elamis, and that is somehow an excuse for them to do the same. So Chrysostom says, this is not abuse, but accusation. It's telling a man who he really is, exposing him to himself. Chrysostom goes on to say, the hard people need to be exposed to themselves for who they really are. John Calvin has a much fuller discussion about Paul's manners in verse 10. He makes several helpful points, Calvin does. First, he says, let's not be too upset by Paul's speech here, or else we will find ourselves accusing the Holy Spirit of intemperance. Beloved, don't overlook what it says right before Paul speaks, that the Holy Spirit fills him. Secondly, Calvin says, we should speak carefully in in the manner that we do and not too frequently in a hard manner because men who hear us so easily favor the affections of the flesh and they love sinful zeal. Wise pastoral words. And third, he says, speak strongly when you must, but do it with gravity and a weight of words, not flippantly. And lastly, Calvin says, to any of those who don't like this kind of speech anywhere, anytime. It almost sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. I will not have this speech with Ham. I will, well, I won't go on. Calvin says to those who would not allow this kind of speech anywhere, anytime, quote, if dainty and soft men judge it troublesome, it is because they consider not how dear and precious God's truth is to him. How does this work in the modern world? By that question, I simply mean this. How, does, how do the ways of God work after the age of the apostles, after the age of the prophets? Paul knew exactly what was in Elamis because he was a prophet. He was an apostle. None of us in this room are. The age of the apostles and the prophets is over, but we continue upon its foundation, Ephesians 2 says. The church cannot be the church without the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So how does this look in the 21st century church? I think it's already revealed to us in the book of Acts. And you're going to hear this in chapter 14. Paul says in a public sermon to unbelieving men, He says, your own prophets have said, and he quotes Old Testament prophets. You see what Paul is doing? He's showing us that even he, as an apostle, also 
ministers on the foundation of the prophets who came before him by quoting them. All we need to do to do this ministry now is preach these very scriptures. And the effect by God's grace will be as follows, as stated in 1 Corinthians 14, 24. When all gather together at the church and prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, bringing the prophetic word into our midst. What Paul says in verse 11, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. This is a severe mercy to Elamis a necessary severity to Elamis. But do not overlook the last three words, because I can guarantee you those last three words became the most precious words to Elamis a week later and a week after that and a month after that as he wandered around with the help of other people's hands. For a time, for a time, for a time as he thought about those words of the apostle, he, by God's grace, we pray and hope. Well, we don't pray. We don't know. We are not contemporary with the man, but you understand what I'm getting at. Perhaps, perhaps, as Elamis concentrated on the Lord's severity and knew that it would not be forever, his heart softened, and he reconciled with the Lord who came and visited him by his servants. But look what happens. Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Sergius Paulus becomes a Christian, a believer. And he's astonished. And this is not the astonishment of a YouTube video of a parrot impersonating Johnny Cash. This is the astonishment of divine authority ministered in the, work, in the words of man, Paul and Barnabas. This is a reminder to us that in preaching the gospel, whether we are missionaries on the other side of the globe or in the cities that we live in, we are declaring the authority of Jesus Christ. And it even astonishes men of high authority. And the wonderful words that Sergius believed is that his sins are forgiven by the one who has authority to forgive sins, by the one before whom all men will stand and be judged. His sins are forgiven. This has astonished him. Are you astonished? by that which you have come to believe. Beloved, our hearts get easily calcified, don't they? We start to get dull around on the edges. We start to get ho-hum about the faith. We need this passage so desperately. We need to see the conversion of Paulus so desperately 
Because this is the life that Christian is called to have in enjoying and glorifying God forever. To walk in the astonishment of the Lord's authority that one so mighty is so merciful. It is only the weakness of our heart that becomes dull with this. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do pray. We pray that you would grant us ears to hear and eyes to see the authority of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have brought to our ears today the testimony of your great works. And if we are not blind today, having suddenly become blind by a spoken word or sitting in our house reading our Bibles, it is not because you are not Lord. It is because you have left us in a state of health because it is even your kindness that leads a man to repentance. You are the Lord of our eyes. You are the Lord of our hearts. You are the Lord full of grace and truth. And we do pray, O Lord, that you would come to any among us in this gathered place who are indeed sons of the devil, who are enemies of righteousness, who are full of deceit and villainy, who are making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Come to any of them today, O Lord. And in your severity mixed with mercy, expose the truth to themselves of who they are. And we pray that they would be humbled to the dust and cry out for mercy and see in Jesus Christ the might of the ages and the mercy of eternity. And Father, for all of us, we pray who believe that we would be restored to the astonishment that one with so much might has stooped so low in mercy to save, to forgive us our sins, to snatch up our souls by his great love and power, to sack the devil's territory and break his rule over us and gather us in, that we would be freshly astonished by this, and stop being so easily astonished by trivial things. Oh, Lord, renew our hearts, we pray. And we do ask, Father, that you would be pleased to advance your kingdom of grace into the most fortified territory of the earth, whether it be a street a mile from here or a city on the other side of the globe. Raise up workers, raise up pastors, evangelists, and teachers. Send them out, O Lord. Send them out, we pray, from us. Send them out from among the number of our boys and girls. Send them out into all the places of the earth to give testimony to he who holds the keys to death and Hades. Jesus Christ, amen.